Life can be a game, especially when you're designing some of your own. Today's guest on Higher Learning is Arman Ashragi, founder and CEO of Curve, a data analytics platform. Arman had so much to say and it's so interesting in terms of talking about his time in the DC area and moving to Austin, what it's like to hire for your company, and what are the small details you need to look out for for candidates when they interview. This was a great conversation with Armand, and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot, just like I did. Can't wait for you to hear the episode. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we are joined by Armand Ashragi, the founder and CEO at Querve. How are you doing, Armand? Great. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I'm very excited to have you. There's a lot of things I want to talk about. When we first talked, I got to see that picture in the background. There's a great story around it. We're going to come back to that, though. I want to start here, okay? You've spent your career decades in the data analytics space, and it's led to you opening up your own company, Querve. I'm interested. Can you tell us a little bit about what the company does, the vision of the company, and then we're going to dive a little bit into the backstory and how we got here? Sure, sure. So the company, uh, Curve, as you said, it's in analytic world, and it really serves the external use case. By external, I mean when you need to create some analytics, for example, reports and dashboards for people outside your company, customers and you know users outside the company, then in that external use case, Curve offers an embedded no-code technology that SaaS companies can take it and reach their product, infuse it and embed it into their product and sell it uh, to create new revenue streams and shorten their time to market. I love that. This is really interesting to me because one of the things that we believe at MSH, we have multiple businesses, recruitment, um, consulting, software, that one of the things that we always offer as part of our product and experience for our customers is a mix of external and internal data to help shape and influence our customers. So I'm interested, can you give us an idea of like of what a use case might look like in a specific industry of, of, of what you've done and maybe a very successful kind of case study there? Sure, many of our customers are CRM applications. You know, you can think of many different CRMs, right? CRMs for different industries, CRM for different personas, CRM for investors, for example, or any type of CRM, there are zillions of them. Any CRM, when you bring data to any CRM that is the contact relation uh, management essentially system, then you bring all of these data at one point, people wanted to get the data out of it, right? And each company has a different requirement on the metrics they wanted to see, how they wanted to monitor the data, what kind of alerts they wanted to set, what kind of changes is important to them, what kind of data predictive analytics they wanted to do. So all of those things need to be in a way that is customizable by their customer. If I'm a CRM provider, I would like to add a technology to my product in a way that when my customer is using it, then they can customize it, not that I have to customize it for them. Because mm. impossible for me to catch up with those changes. So that's really one of the main benefits that we offer as a, a company that offers no-code technology and self-service technologies uh, that they essentially can give the ultimate power to their customers and customers is in driver's seat and they can do a lot of things on their own without the software vendor and the SaaS provider limit them or 
expense, you know, at their expense just because they wanted to be nice to customers that retain customers. And I imagine an important part and aspect of the offering is that the, the, the tool has to be super intuitive, super simplistic in terms of how to use to configure and get what you want out of it. Because at the end of the day, the end user might be somebody sitting in sales, somebody sitting in marketing, somebody who's let, using the end tool. And we want to give the customer that kind of autonomy to kind of create the information they need. Correct. Yes, and depends on whom do you want to serve, right? So you have to serve super users that are developers and coders. You have to give them ultimate power by giving them APIs and everything. And then you have to please the data analysts and power users who are not coders, but they know Excel and spreadsheet and data model very well, but they need more power than just the regular end user. And then you need to serve the very end users that the limit is five or six clicks. And if you go beyond that limit, then it's too confusing, too cumbersome for them. So you have to really, you know, look at different personas, different layer of users. And the tricky point is, do you have enough for each of these user groups? And now we are in AI age. So now you have a new kind of copy. I mean, for every of these three categories that I mentioned, like super user, power user, end user, now you have AI user next to it. What if I'm not really a super user, but I'm AI user mimicking a super user, and I wanted to just generate all of these on my own, then that also should serve that kind of, you know, uh, model, right? So, so we are at AI age, so you should double these kind of three categories. I love it. We're going to get back into AI in a minute. What I want to ask you about, what I want to learn about is I want to learn about your journey, Armand, because you've been in the data space for 30 plus years, and... I know that over the last, at least the last 15 to 20 years of my life, the proliferation of analytics and big data and data lakes and the understanding of how to drive insights and, and, and data scientists have become one of the most important positions in different companies. It seems like you caught on to the wave very early on. I'm interested in your youth. Did you have a proclivity for numbers or looking at insights and, and data or, or was that something that you, you went through your education and you picked up? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I started my first company when I was first year in college at the age of 18, literally out of garage with three other classmates. And uh, it was the time that MS-DOS came to market. And we developed that kind of, you know, application and data and automation for MS-DOS. The second company, when Windows 3.1 came to market, at that point, I was out of university and then the third company, when XML came to market and internet started to work with data, and the fourth company is the one that we are talking about, Purvey, when AWS introduced this new technology. In all of these cases, I'm doing the same thing, just in different environment. And the reason I'm so interested in data and interested in automation, because I think it adds a lot of value, right? So at the age of 18, the first time that I really was fascinated by this was the time that you know, there was a factory that essentially the accounting people sitting there and doing a lot of these repetitive jobs for like inventory and inventory management and payroll and accounting and just name it, all of these things. And then I realized all of these kind of repetitive tasks can be really done by this small box, a computer on, it was very early days of personal computer. I mean, we could do it in the earlier days in mainframe, it's a big facility, but this was the first time I could carry actually, you know, a computer into the room, put it on a, on a, on a table and just start using it. That was fascinating. And when we did it after some months 
And the whole organization was so fast to create all of the reports that used to take weeks to respond with a press, pressing a button. I realized this is really magic. And then the beauty of that is you can, back then they had floppy disks, so it was not uh, internet or anything else, but you could really copy this floppy disk and then go to the next company and then tweak it. And it was like, wow, it's happening now even faster. Last time it took me six months to do it. Now it takes me one month to customize it. And as we did it again and again, tens and you know, 50 times and 60 times, we got that to just one day of customization and done. And it was really, really uh, rewarding from both aspects, from aspect of helping these organizations and people and getting things better. Also very rewarding from a business perspective that your business is adding so much value, um, right? So that was fascinating as a kind of software guy and it was fascinating as a looking on the business side of it. Yeah, love that. So I, I want to talk, you're in Austin now, correct? That's correct. Yep. Okay, one of the, the brightest and fastest growing tech hubs we have in our country. You spent a lot of your, your, your earlier career in the DMV, in the DC before moving to Austin, correct? Did you When did you move actually to Austin? Have you been there for many, many years or how long? Uh, no, actually, very recently. So uh, when I moved to DC area, it was '95 when I migrated from Iran to the United States. And at that time, uh, then we moved to DC area, Northern Virginia, to be accurate. And then I lived there with my wife and my son for 24 years. And then we moved to California to the Bay Area in San Francisco Bay Area, and we stayed there for some years, four or five years before we just before moving to Austin. That happened really in March. Just okay, let's talk months. about it. You've only been in Austin recently. So what's your, like, are you still getting adjusted? Do you love it? Why did you choose Austin? Uh, Austin, the main reason for us to move to Austin was central time because uh, my wife uh, needed to work on central time and Eastern time. So it was very much working on the West Coast. It was like every day getting up at 4 and 5 a.m. Um, she didn't mind. I mind, uh, you know, uh, that kind of lifestyle that you have to get up in the morning, it changes everything. But when we moved here, uh, we definitely loved it. Uh, we loved Austin even in the past when we were coming just as a tourist. To be honest with you, uh, number one, I love people here. It's just very engaging, talking to people. Everyone is so helpful. It's just uh, amazing. So you get that kind of uh, impression within a few days. It doesn't need months and months to really get to that realization that people are really kind of easy to connect, easy to communicate. Everyone is so helpful. So that's definitely the music and the students in the city that is the university city, maybe music city, maybe whatever uh, condition exists, it has created that kind of unique culture that it's a, a small town culture, but you are not actually living in a small town. So you have best of both worlds. You are living in a you know city with all of the uh, things that you expect from a bigger city, all of the facilities, everything that you expect to have. But at the same time, people really have that kind of you know uh, cozy feeling and that kind of friendly manner that you would love it. Yeah, I love that. My brother lives out there. I've spent some time out there. It's it's a fascinating, wonderful city. I know they say keep Austin weird. It's very different from the rest of Texas <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Um, but also it's the capital, right? There's the university there. Uh, I definitely am going to get out to a game, a football game at UT at some point in the near future. And then, of course, like you mentioned, the food is incredible. Great barbecue. 
Uh, I know it's cliche, but I waited in line for hours at Franklin's Barbecue and, and enjoyed every bit of that brisket. Um, and then also the music scene and the, the bar scene yeah. is really good, too. So I, I can't say enough good things about Austin. And that's not even talking about the great thriving tech scene that they have out there. So Austin's a great yeah. city and I love every time I visit. Go ahead. And, and by, by the way, we, we are very lucky because uh, we live in great cities. This area, Northern Virginia, we love it. Yeah, it still feels like home 24 years. Never, no other city in my life I have lived so long there. So it definitely feels like home is still to us. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area, fascinating, great place to be in the midst of all of this software and technology. And still, I travel very, very often to both West and East. And that's another benefit of being here at the central place that you can travel so easily east or west. I love it. I love it. All right, now listen, I want to talk a little bit about, because when you and I first connected, I saw the art in the back and it's mixing some things that I like. It's a little bit surreal. There's wine, there's chess, there's like a cloud and sunset. And I asked you, what is this art? Where did you get this? And you have a really interesting answer. So tell us, I want to, I want to understand how this art came about and how it was created. Sure. Um, yeah, this is the artist. Uh, unfortunately, I forgot the name of the artist because I had this for so long. But the artist had a workshop and probably might have a workshop is still there in outside DC area, in um, Arlington area, if I'm correct, outside DC. And what he was doing back then was mixing the machine and human work. So part of it is the human painting something. And then part of it is machine coming and completing that paint because there are so much calculation on rendering and putting all of the shadows on different objects. And sometimes it's just shadow on something that affects something else the same. So it's impossible for a human being to be able to calculate that level of kind of, you know, um, rendering and shadowing and everything and reflection of the lights and everything. And that is being done by machine, but on top of something that a human has created. And uh, that kind of work of, between machine at the same time the message you see there it's kind of like wine as you said it's representing the emotion part of our brain and then the chessboard and you know that is the logical part of our brain and that reminds me every day that we are a kind of mix of both if we go too far on one side or the other we are not going to do great if we just act like it's super 100 percent logical entity we are a robot. We are not human anymore. And if you go too much into emotional side, then it's just too much emotion, nothing, no logic, nothing would make sense. So we need to really have both in a harmony in order to really, you know, um, act like a human. And I love that kind of mix, right? So every, every minute, every day. I literally love that. I think it's very symbolic of the time we're in right now as the, the rise of AI and as we're starting to use it more as consumers and businesses. And you see a lot of fear and a lot of people worried that it's going to replace jobs or there's some people that are so excited about it. They no longer have to write term papers or they're able to do you know mundane tasks through the, through the AI rather than having to do it manually themselves. And really what like the conversation I've had, what I've seen a lot of is that we're, we're I think that it's going to enhance, right, what we do, right? There's certainly, I've said this a few times, but I don't think AI is going to replace your job, but I think somebody who knows how to use AI might replace your job. And so it's incumbent <laughs> on everybody to learn these new technologies, learn these new skills, and learn how to leverage them in a way that's going to make their life better. And what better than that painting and that rendering, doing beautiful art, and then being able to take it to another level through the machine. So I think there's some sort of perfect harmony there that... That, that gives me a, a sense of positivity and optimism as we go forward. What do you think? Absolutely, absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, 
I'm very optimistic about AI. I'm not really afraid of, you know, AI coming and taking over the world. I think, yes, it's a different, it's not as kind of industrial revolution. It's a little bit more sophisticated than that. And probably human, uh, you know, as a human being, uh, it may impact me differently than any other wave and any other revolution that has happened before. But I think at the same time, uh, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, it's going to happen in a way that human being is going to really just guide it through, you know, the path that we want. And I trust, you know, as a as a whole, I mean, as a society, as a group, as a community, as a country, we will take the right steps to really do it right. Um, so I'm not super concerned as some people might be. Doesn't doesn't mean that we should not really pay attention to it. Definitely there are super, you know, important matters around AI that you should pay attention to it. But I'm very optimistic about the outcome 10, 20, 30 years from now. I'm super excited when I go to Austin and take a robot taxi that takes me from point A to point B and I pay $5 to get any point to any point in Austin. That's a plus. I don't see it as a minus. When I go and just run the algorithm and the algorithm decides if I should get you know, take this loan or not, if I should make this decision or not. I really like that. I don't take it as a negative. I think these are just um, good progress that we as human beings, we are making. Totally agree. Could not agree more. And in fact, on my ride in this morning, I, I have a Tesla and I was using the, the self-automated driving and, you know, I'm still getting <laughs> used to it. I'm not 100% comfortable with it yet, but it's, you know, it's expanding and it's going forward and it's an evolution. And I think it's a very positive thing. So I'm totally aligned with you on that. And I got to tell you, one of my things me and my wife bonded over when we were dating is love of board games. Like we love to play games. We have game night at my house. So really enjoy that. When I asked you about that, you take that to a completely different level. Not only are you having game night at your house, it sounds like one of your passions is designing your own games. So I'm super interested to hear about this. But Armand, tell us how you got into this and what you do with games. Like what, what kind of games do you build? And then I imagine you have friends over and have some of that wine and, and, and play games. How does that look? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So we have, uh, you know, one of the things that we can do as a group when we have people coming over and friends is to play game. To be honest with you, I don't enjoy, I'm not smart enough to really talk about politics or talk about many other topics that I think they are more dividers. I'd rather to really bring game and just, you know, when we, when people leave, you know, our home, they have a better feeling. It's like, hey, you know, it was fun. We are now you know better as a group as a person it's it's just you know we are thinking we are strategizing it's really fun experience is uniting it's not dividing us and and these games uh, depending on whom you are playing with you choose different games because there might be a game that requires a little bit more thinking less talking there are some games that are very much like socializing and laughing and talking it's really a little bit of psychology there that you choose the game based on people that you have in the group who want to play game. And then, um, uh, you know, from the childhood, since I was sometimes in charge of, you know, um, when I was, for example, in middle school, there were some cousins coming and they were in elementary school four or five years younger than me. And I was in charge of keeping them busy and, you know, at home and just making them entertain and these kind of things. I always came up with these games that I could create quickly two hours before they arrived. The game was ready and they loved it. They just coming and what is this game about? And then I was just, you know, explaining some of these rules was were invented on the fly as we were just talking. And then we were playing and that gave me a kind of 
a fun way to really create these games. And sometimes, you know, uh, you just create the game out of the existing game. You can get take two games and mix them. Just take some dice and take the chessboard and create 50 games out of it, right? So you can really easily just come up with many different games with two different, very simple tools. Um, so, so I love it. Uh, it's just, you know, it's about creativity. I have a collection of hundreds of uh, games, uh, strategic, uh, more strategy games, more board games, old-fashioned games. Uh, I'm not, my son is very much into video games. I'm not, but uh, I love it. I mean, it's a kind of activity that every time we do it, we just, it's so fun and we would love to do it again. I love it. And necessity is the mother of invention. You had to create games to keep the kids entertained. And so that's how that worked out. I have a buddy that we're always playing cards and like he'll bring games that he played back, you know, in, in, in the area that he grew up in. And we've never heard of these games. And part of the problem is that like, you know, he'll tell us the rules up front, we'll start playing and then we'll hit a road roadblock and he'll be like making up a rule on the fly. And it always seems like the rule that we make up <laughs> seems to help him. So come on, I hope that's not you. I hope you're being comprehensive with the rule book and making sure you're playing fair. When you invite <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, we try to play fair. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, this is a hiring podcast. You've done a lot of hiring throughout your career. We want to learn a little bit more about how you built your company, what you're looking for. So I want to start with this. Do you have maybe a core hiring philosophy or principle that you adhere to in terms of people that you want to bring into your company? That's correct. And honestly, that trickles down from the bigger philosophy you have in life, right? So at one point, you would ask yourself, what kind of people do you want to surround myself with forget about business just in life so when i came to that kind of question at one point of my life that i don't remember when it was then i thought that okay whom do i want to really be associated with and i thought that well it has nothing to do when i looked at people around me and the ones that i like to surround myself with it had nothing to do with any particular characteristic being analytic person you know, I could just think about different attributes of the person. Is it the age? No. Is it where they live? No. Is it is it about what they think and what kind of belief they have? No. None of those were exactly those characteristics, but what they had in common, the best people that inspired me in life and I loved them, was the people that were helpful and they really were happy. And I don't think people can be happy unless they are truthful to themselves and to others. And those people were the ones that I admired most. So when I started a company, I thought these are the kind of people I wanted to bring to the company and that's the kind of culture I wanted to build. I wanted to bring people who are helpful to others and to themselves, of course, and also they are truthful with others and with themselves. And if those meet kind of that, if those people meet those criteria, everything else is going to play well. Yeah. You bring these people to the company, it builds a culture and nurtures that kind of cultures and cultivates that culture gradually. And after a while, if you start with the right people, especially at the beginning, then they will carry that and they will start building the kind of culture. At one point, you are not the main force behind culture because you are just one person and there are 50, 60, 100, 200 people around you. And they are in charge of cultivating that but you are the one who started building the very first layer and the first tier. And that core team, they become the builders of that kind of culture. But that has been the philosophy on my side. Um, so, you know, I would love for everyone in the company, when, for example, we bring a new person, the new person come to me and say, it's amazing. Everyone is so helpful 
to me and everyone, any question I ask, people just go take the extra mile to help me to really explain to me. It's so easy to get started here. And that's what I wanted to hear. And as soon as I don't hear that, it worries me that something is not working, right? And I hear that comment a lot and I'm happy about it. And that's what I'm very sensitive to. And the kind of people we bring to the company, they are those kind of people. Those are the people that actually are here to serve the group, the business, the customers. And as a result, they are successful as well. But you know, that's the kind of mentality. Every customer needs to contact us and just say, hey, you have a wonderful team because these people are so customer oriented. They are so honest with us. They are so transparent. They are helpful. And those are the things that differentiates us from everybody else but to be so customer-centric and so transparent, so honest, so helpful to them. I love that. Do you have any favorite questions that you ask in interviews, maybe to determine some of those characteristics? Uh, honestly, the best question I always ask is, what's your question? Right? So I give them the opportunity to ask me, as the founder, any questions they want. Well, it tells you a lot about the question that the person asks you more than any other question you can ask. For example, are they thinking more philosophically about really, should I join this company? Have they studied anything about the company before joining? Do they know about the company at all? Have they even checked the website to see what you are doing? I mean, what kind of question you can ask if you know nothing about this company, right? So as soon as really I'm open for them to ask me their questions before I ask them any question, let's say we have 40 minutes. I wanted to give them 20 minutes to ask me any questions before I start any questions. So in that 20 minutes, I would love to hear the questions. And sometimes I hear fantastic questions. And that tells me that this person, you know, has thought about the plan, why the person wants to join us, what this company does, what is the history, why are you doing this? Is it just, you know, for me joining a company? What is the culture there? Is there, I'm getting into an environment that is full of politics and I have to really pick one group versus the other group every day? Or is it a group that I just join and I feel like I, I don't need to be a politician to be successful there? And I can't really just think about the right thing to do and I still am successful and the organization rewarding me for doing the right thing and thinking about customers and everything. So, you know, those kind of questions pop up during that kind of time. And that tells me about, you know, the person knows what kind of company, what kind of culture, what kind of people, what kind of product, what kind of market they wanted to work with. And the more educated they are on these matters, the less risk you have on this hiring because they know what they wanted to do and they are fully educated on these topics. And then you have less risk to really get into a situation that the person really has not thought about it versus someone who has not really thought about any of these and may not even appreciate that kind of you know, unique culture that you're offering that is fantastic, but may not be realized. Yeah, I love that. I have a founder friend that um, she talks about how when she goes through the interview process with people for her company, she has it 50% be them interviewing the candidate and 50% the candidate interviewing the company. Because she thinks it's just as important for the candidate to make sure that they're making a fit aligned with their motivations and what they care about and go through the process and ask questions 
so they can get to what they need to understand to see if they're making a good career decision. It's as important, if not more important in a lot of cases than the company making the decision. So I think it's really important to focus on those questions. And yeah, like you said, you want to see somebody that's researched, that's prepared, and that's going to, that, that's really passionate and excited about joining the company. And you can tell when someone hasn't done their research. So I think that's a really good call out. When I ask you for a memorable interview experience, good or bad, you don't have to name names. What's one that comes to mind? Maybe you are interviewing or maybe you are interviewing somebody else. Yeah, there was a time that, uh, you know, first of all, I, I don't insist to be part of the interview. Normally, I ask people if I can offer any value. If I'm helpful to them as a hiring managers, then I would join the interview. Otherwise, they don't have to really bring the candidate to me. So it's not mandatory in our company that I have to interview every single person, even if you're a small company, it's still, you know, 105 people. It's not like a big size company, but if the hiring manager really doesn't see any value, doesn't see any value, that's fine. Um, but if they see that I can be of help, then great. I will be glad to be of help and, and, and participate. In my previous company, for example, there was a case, I think we were about 250 people at that time or 200 something people at that time. So um, I think we were hiring at that position for a sales uh, uh, for sales position. It was more for the bigger size deals, enterprise sales kind of, Person and we had two candidates. I interviewed those two candidates, and one of them came to my office, um, and we had a nice, you know, chat and good questions, discussions. Um, but the person um, did uh, did not. Uh, it, it was it was it was in a way that I thought when the person talks and everything, uh, it, it is uh, okay. But the person is the kind of person that probably will respect himself more than the customer or the prospect. The second candidate came and the decision was between these two candidates. And the second candidate came and he was very respectful in all of the discussion and everything in a way that when he was explaining everything, the first person left the room without even taking the coffee cup out and you know cleaning after himself. The second person came and he was really did everything correctly including grabbing, you know, things and cleaning after himself. And, and he was kind of just the same thing that I thought that he will probably treat the prospects and customer of us the same way. And regardless of at that moment, probably I thought the first person may result better and sell a little bit more than the second person, but I couldn't justify hiring the first person just because I thought the second person would be way more respectful to our prospects and customers. And when I hired the second person, fortunately that person turned out to be the best salesperson ever in the history of company. So it was best of both worlds. And he was so respectful to customers. Every customer prospect liked him very much. Every sales engineer liked him very much. People inside the company liked him very much, but also he was the top performer. And that was really a great experience. Uh, going through just you know that kind of thing. So so to me, uh, not just answers and questions, but also the manner that the person has in, within the interview, and then you need to see what kind of manner you want that person to have for your prospects and customers. Um, so to me, that's really kind of a good and bad experience, right? So I would tell you that the worst experience I had have been with people that they even didn't know what the company does, even didn't bother to look at the website. They had no idea and they came to interview. And, uh, and that was very, very surprising to me because 
to me, at least spending five to 10 minutes, not more, but spending 10 minutes to understand what kind of, and the questions and the discussion was very irrelevant at that point because they didn't know anything about us. And, and those were normally the worst experiences that I had with someone through coming and, you know, wants to, you know, talk. And, and, and to be honest with you, we don't have a particular order. Even, even if I have, um, you know, I'm the founding CEO of the company, sometimes for some positions, I take the first call before I pass it to the team because the team is busy at the time and I'm the least busy person in that particular week. And I say, let me take the first one so you guys can just talk to people who have been screened versus the other way around that sometimes I'm the last person because I want the team to just go ahead and just interview and send me, you know, their best two candidates and then I talk to. So so yeah. that that's has been my experience. Yeah. So it just goes to show you that the small stuff adds up and really matters. And so I think that's important that do your research, make sure you clean up after yourself. Everybody's noticing everything, especially in those interview situations. It's very heightened. Is there anything in particular you do around creating candidate experience to give people an understanding of what it's like to work at Cuerve or if they, if they, you know, uh, give them a realistic job preview to understand what it's like to work with you or work with the team, anything you do in, in the interview process to kind of uh, enlighten that for people who are prospective candidates? Yeah. So we talk about really three different things in the company that is important to us. Uh, we, we talk about the fact that, uh, Helping other people is very important. Communicating with other people is very important. How you communicate with other people, with your colleagues, with people outside the company, customers, prospects. So communication is really important to us. And the third is we want you to be a thinker, not a follower. So you never, ever get fired at Curvey because you didn't um, follow the order. Uh, never, ever anyone has, uh, you know, in the company, I let that person go because I thought that this is the best idea. And the person said, it's not a good idea. That was not the case. I, I love people telling me that your idea is not great because of this reason. But if people tell me all the time, yes, yes, you, what you say is really right. I know that person is not the right person to be in the next meeting, right? So I don't get any value out of that. So these three things we normally explain about these three, that you need to be a thinker, not necessarily a follower, uh, to be successful at Curvey, you need to be really good communicator, positively, constructively communicate with everyone and uh, express yourself, be truthful uh, to people around you. And then you need to also be a helper. And if you are not willing to help other people and the rest of your colleagues and you're always in competition, not helping others, that's not the right environment for you. Yep, totally makes sense. You know, you as a technology leader, I'm interested, you know, when you're going through the hiring process or your team's going through the hiring process, are they leveraging technology in order to kind of do the interview process? Are they using Excel? Are they using Airtable? Are you writing down notes? Like, how do you kind of keep notes and kind of keep track of everything during the interview process from a technology perspective? Yeah, so we have evolved, as you can imagine, and we have learned from every single interview and just making the next one better. For some positions, it's very doable to use technology, for example, providing a problem to solve, or if this is about coding, hey, this is really the code we want you to write about this one. So there are many different, if this is a data engineering position, or it's a QA position, or it's a, you know, depending on the position, definitely there are different tests and different kind of criteria that we go through. Uh, and sometimes, as you say, you know, there are some third-party 
utilities and third party quizzes, tests that you use, and those can also provide you some guidelines. But in general, it's not federated. It's not like, you know, we have this particular, you know, we are a small company, but at the same time, you want to make sure every hiring manager gets the guideline, but also has the ability to customize what that person wants to really go through. Because even for three different teams, all development teams, all engineering teams, it's not like all three head of engineering for all three groups have the same methodology, have the same way to really understand whom I should hire to work with me. And we let them decide at some degree what kind of, but at the same time, when it comes to technical manners, matters, then yes, the technical um, you know, aspect of it can be measured scientifically by different tools. Sure. So you're using technology for measurement of specific technical expertise and things like that. But when it comes to um, you know, structured interviews and things like that, really, there's nothing you have different you know, expectations across the board, depending on who's interviewing you. So there's nothing really out there that fits the bill. That makes total sense. Um, I want to take it a little bit of a different direction because we, we, we got through some of the hiring questions. I want to ask you what you're working on right now that you're really juiced about. What are you pumped about? Anything that new product, new acquisition, new, you know, inside uh, opportunity within the company? What's going on that you're excited about and that gets you out of bed in the morning? Sure. So, you know, we have been uh, at Curvey uh, at the phase that we started like any other software company at the product phase. You had to build the product. And then we got to the revenue phase and that was exciting because you bring all of these customers and now we are in expansion mode. So we are, for example, next year, we are going to sell outside US and Canada for the first time. So far, we have been focusing selling only in North America. So the international part of the sales will start, the revenue side internationally will start kicking in next year. Uh, we are bringing also a free product version of the Curve product that will be used worldwide uh, for free. So people can actually use it. And especially at the time that Tableau is changing the direction and uh, they are increasing the pricing and licensing is getting more cumbersome. There are so many users out there that they are really searching for a better alternative. And it happened for me to be, for, for Curve to be ready for that time to really come to market and offer Curve Express. So that would be a new offering from Curve starting next year that people can take it for free and use it for any number of users and any size of data and any number of servers at no, uh, and, and it, it's pretty rich. Uh, we are uh, also at the point that AI is getting more important and we are using generative AI to generate content. And Curve is the most API driven analytic technology in the market. And what it does for us is it's perfect candidate for Gen AI because then you can really put this LLM engine behind it and it knows how to deliver the content. Content can be your data model. It can be your data set. It can be your uh, dashboard, can be your report, your workflow. And you will see that kind of happening more and more in the coming versions. We had our first version of adding AI to Curve some months ago and we continue with every upgrade to really boost that. So that's very exciting too. Um, we have been selling mostly to B2B companies. So Curve has been embedded into B2B SaaS companies offering and you will see more capabilities coming next year 
just targeting B2C SaaS companies. So they can also embed Curve and we'll find. So a variety of things that are coming to life, um, all exciting to me. Lots to be excited about. You know, I ask founders and CEOs a lot of the time, you know, tell me about a typical day in your work life. And, you know, a lot of times we hear about meetings and things like that. So I'm going to ask it a little bit of a different way. When you've had a really productive day and you go home at night and you feel good about the day, what typically happened in that day? Nothing. Nothing. If it's a product, if it's a productive day, that means that company is doing very well. Nobody contacts me, right? So normally when people contact me, it should be some kind of issue. And if nobody is really kind of pinging me, that means everything yeah, you know, is really going perfectly smooth. great. Right. So that's a very productive day at Curvey. So the less I hear, the better day that day would be for the company. But normally there are things that people wanted to, you know, just ping you. And again, going back to the point that everyone is running his or her own section autonomously at Curvey. I'm not a product manager. Product management is doing the product management. I'm not a QA kind of, you know, guy. So the QA people are working on their own. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not best in marketing. I'm not best in anything, honestly. So these guys, each person is really autonomously managing the product marketing or the lead, the demand gen or the sales or whatever that might be, the technical support. And I'm not managing anyone. I'm just there to help them and serve them as needed. And when they need something, they come to me and say, Arman, this is the situation. We have a customer that is asking for a different time zone support and what should we now do with support? Okay, it's not necessarily a problem, but this is something now we need to think, okay, we need to expand the support, maybe different regions, maybe different time zones, maybe different time hours. Uh, or if it's about really the sales, what kind of licensing we should offer to this special case? And that, those are the cases that, you know, I'm getting into that kind of uh, consultation mode with them and brainstorming mode. But otherwise, uh, to me, you know, a, construct, a, a very productive day can be a day that I essentially just spend time to fine-tune things and think about different uh, processes we do and better planning for the next year and next quarter. And um, I have been around, uh, you, you see my gray hair, right? So I have been around to learn that I have been in many situations in the past that we won all of the battles and then we lost the war. So as the CEO, my main job, more important than any other job I have, is everyone in the company every day comes and just starts winning the battle every day. And my job is to make sure we are winning the war. And I don't want to be in the tactical situation again that we all are working so hard and we have won 200 battles, but at the end of five years or 10 years, we are losing the war. Wow. So that takes a lot of time, a lot of time to really think through it. You need to see the big picture. You need to really understand everything that everyone is does. And that's the big responsibility on your on my shoulder, because again, Everybody is doing such a fantastic job winning all of these battles. And if we lose the war, that's on me. Then it should not happen. Love that. I'm going to leave you with one last question. If you had to offer advice to Armand when he was 20 that you didn't know then that you know now, or maybe for our early in career listeners, what would that be? Yeah, probably the same thing, honestly. Just, you know, be mindful of, you know, uh, 
don't get too much into the weeds. And if you are really getting every day into these kind of details and winning all these battles, understand also the fact that you need to ultimately you need to win the war. So looking and thinking a little bit more strategically can always help. And when um, 20 years ago, maybe I was, um, I was more getting into these battles and trying to fight the battle with everybody else in the company and not be mindful of, you know, the big picture. Uh, that's definitely something that uh, I'm more mindful of it now. Love it. Well, great advice. I hope people are writing notes on that, taking it down. Armand, I really appreciate our time today. Thank you so much for joining. Wishing you the best with more designing of games and success with the company. <laughs> Enjoy, my friend. Sure. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Bye.